0: welcome to shared instance a podcast on iOS development by three iOS developers in Cincinnati Ohio I'm Sam quarter
1: I'm Alex Argo
0: and I'm Alex Robinson and this is episode 147 well gentlemen welcome back again
1: what's going on uh,
0: I' I'm, I'm actually living in a cool house now uh, the reason that we didn't record was because my 25 year old air conditioner broke last week it wasn't the hottest week of the summer but it was pretty damn hot but it wasn't texas hot so i can be grateful for that i probably would have died
1: so is this like a window air conditioner broke or like your uh central air central air broke yeah that's not not good man
0: no (laughs) but it wasn't the end of the world
1: Open some windows. You're good.
0: Yeah, for the first few days it was really hot, and then the humidity rolled out and it cooled down a bit. So it was it was tolerable, but that was well after we would have normally podcasted, yeah. and I would have would have been in like a sweat lodge if we were trying to record.
1: You wouldn't want to use one of the new uh, MacBook Pros at your house, though. So that would probably have been bad news.
0: <laughs> Super hot.
1: Well, you've, you've heard about throttle gate right?
0: I mean, there's always some kind of gate with an Apple product. Yeah. Right.
1: Well, So the latest one is that the the fancy new i9, like the, the maxed out laptop, can't even hold his base clock when under load for a while. So there's like some dude who did a YouTube video uh, and basically he he compared it to like a 2017 maxed out MacBook Pro, the 2017 one, one. And then he was like, wait, let me put it in a freezer and see what happens. And then when it was in the freezer, it kicked, it kicked the butt of the 2017 MacBook Pro.
0: So it, the CPU, because it's detecting that it's getting too hot, is slowing itself down. And I guess slowing itself down significantly enough that it can't, can't beat last year's model. That's what we were saying.
1: Correct. Because it's a, this is a 6-core processor that wasn't designed to fit in, you know, the small thermal footprint that we have in these MacBook Pros. You know, Intel hasn't shrunk their process at all in a couple of years. So we're on like the tick tock 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 talk, 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 talk or whatever <laughs> we're on now. And, yeah.
0: Hey, you know, that's why they went to Intel in the first place, because... IBM slash Motorola just weren't delivering on a laptop enabled G5.
2: So. Well, I mean, the the risk based chip architecture just wasn't cutting it anymore for what they were doing.
0: Oh, but they, no, it was more like you had this G4, and that was all. IBM wasn't really putting a whole lot of new money and research into a desktop processor because apple was their only client and
2: no xbox later yeah xbox was using the the risk chips but uh, but those are very specialized specialized so
1: yeah so i want i want i want to give the guy credit it was was a youtuber named dave lee seemed like he knew his stuff he did his macbook pro i9 review or whatever and you know found out this throttling issue in the past like week since it happened there's been a whole bunch of people who have been you know doing their own tests uh, it seems to mostly affect like long running multi-core processes like synthetic benchmarks you know exporting video after you edit it um, And I, there's a benchmark I saw where someone basically takes a project and compiles it ten times in a row <laughs>
0: who would ever do that
1: Um, so yeah i mean all in all those cases i mean the video editing stuff it seems like that's what they marketed this thing for and then you get it and it's slower than last year's model i'd be kind of annoyed um
2: yeah one thing he does call out in the article is that uh temperature throttling is not anything new or unusual it's just the extreme case in this scenario. Yeah,
1: they're they're basically saying this can't hold its base clock speed that you know the one that's advertised at much less, you know, the the top end speed that they advertise is kind of like a when you're just doing single threaded work, it should go up to that every once in a while if it needs to. But yeah, it seems like Apple could probably like tweak their firmware and make the fans blow more or something like that.
2: And Maybe there's something in Mojave to help out with that.
1: Breaking news! After we recorded, Apple released a software update to fix all of the MacBook Pros with the new processors. And it seems to have mostly fixed the issues, although it didn't seem to affect the fan speed that much. Now, back to your regularly scheduled program. It's funny, I I went and picked this laptop up at the Apple Store, the exact one that all the concerns are about, uh, and then I got home and watched this YouTube video, so...
0: Well, you have 14 days to return it. I think you're still in your window, right?
1: I'm still in my window, but... I don't know. So, like, as you guys know, I normally have been running the Hackintosh and... I feel like I'm ready for something to you know quote just work to whatever extent this laptop will do that um,
0: so you want to become legit
1: sure i'll I'll <laughs> go with that I want to be legit i've been i've been a been a i don't know what's the word for someone who's not legit
0: <laughs> illegitimate.
1: <laughs> i've been an illegitimate developer for the past <laughs> for the past like six years so i've had a hackatosh maybe even longer than that, since like 2009 i think um and it's been my main development machine for most of those years although all of our builds we do off of like a mac mini so the builds are at least not illegitimate <laughs> but maybe just my day-to-day work is illegitimate um well-
0: but well, when you first started doing iOS development, you were using an illegitimate SDK on an illegitimate Mac, right? Because it was yeah. a Hackintosh.
1: Yep, that sounds about right.
0: Can't get too much more old school than that.
1: Yeah, I mean, and I had, you know, during that time, I always would have a laptop. And if I was, you know, it needed to be portable, I'd use my MacBook Pro or whatever so i didn't feel bad about like pirate quote pirating the the os or anything like that because i i paid for the hardware that had the os and all that stuff now legally i'm not sure where that put me but (laughs) i i didn't feel morally morally wrong but it you know it's i i got a 5k monitor like a year or two ago and had all sorts of issues getting that to work with a hackintosh and i'm like i don't feel like i have any right to complain about this Uh, I can't submit a bug report about it or anything. I didn't want to waste your time, but I actually, so got the laptop, I installed Mojave right on it, which was, you know, a boneheaded move. Uh, and my 5k display did not work in Mojave. Although my, my wife's 2017 MacBook Pro, a 13 inch, uh, it worked. The 5k display worked just fine through the Thunderbolt three adapter. So I filed a bug report. I reverted back to High Sierra, and it works just fine on High Sierra. But I'm like, well, I, I paid the money to be able to file that bug report, so. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I remember, you know, Apple screws that up occasionally because I had problems when I bought my 4K and loaded one of the betas on. I can't remember what it was at this point. It's probably two years ago now, but on the old version of macOS, it. was running great you could get the right resolutions that you wanted and the new beta one totally messed it up and i think it was that way till just that till like another point release or two after the release so you could be waiting a while
1: yeah so i was really confused on like why why a 2017 macbook pro would work just fine and a 2018 would not but turns out there's a newer thunderbolt 3 controllers that supports like display point 1.4 which is some new version that maybe potentially will be able to run 8k monitors at some point i don't know but uh so i'm I'm guessing now that i guess like a day or two before we recorded some articles came out along those lines that said oh there's a new thunderbolt controller in this thing that can do fancy display port stuff although it doesn't like in software support it yet uh, so they're they're clearly working on some stuff in the Mojave beta that hopefully will get worked out soon I got it on an external hard drive so whenever the next beta version comes out I'll be able to test it out but yeah have, how, how have your guys luck been with uh, the betas of all the things lately
0: I still have not done a Mojave install anywhere
1: or even the iOS betas
0: yeah as far as the iOS betas go, I almost don't even know that I'm running them, It's except for I can't use it with the old version of Xcode. So
2: Yeah, one definitely seems very stable to me. I heard two was kind of buggy, so I skipped two, went to three. Haven't had too much issue with three, but I've held off on four.
1: Yeah, two is definitely unstable for me. I just update to all of them because I'm stupid. Um... <laughs> And not a good professional. I'm illegitimate, remember. Uh, right. But, <laughs> but yeah. It, it seems like nothing has been as good as the first one. So hopefully they get back to that that stability soon. I'm, I'm sure as listeners hear this, they'll be getting beta 5. Or in the next couple of days after this podcast comes out, they'll be getting beta 5. Um, maybe that'll fix all the things. But... I mean, they've been fairly solid so far,
2: and it's only uh, it's only July, so yeah, yeah. typically they don't release the the gold version until September, so we've got some time. Yeah, true. We might actually see more betas than we've seen in the past. What what's the, what's the record for number of betas?
0: Uh, around eight or so. I mean, 8 would be roughly 16 weeks, but there were probably a couple that were back-to-back weeks.
1: iOS 5 had 7 betas and then a GM. Um, looks like iOS 8 also had 8. I'm looking and... at all the other <laughs> ones in the the Thinky Bits iOS version history. Um,
0: Sometimes the GMs still get revved one more version
2: i've seen that
1: yeah looks like and ios 5 so... was a pretty big they had seven betas and then
2: ios 11 had 10 betas it did suppose oh yeah i'm looking at that yeah. you're right so so they've had that.
1: 10 betas yeah and then they had 10 betas and then a gm so you are correct sir so we'll see what uh We'll see what 12 can do well, we're actually on pace to be to have more betas right now than than ios 11 just based yeah. on the current pace i think they took like a week off over the 4th of july for ios 12 and we they didn't really do that for or maybe july 4th just fell on a week they don't normally release betas for ios 12 so i think we're having
0: an, another like 11.4 whatever beta that week, the 4th of July week.
1: Yeah, so we'll, we'll see where we end up. Um,
0: yeah, my bet the reason is they had so many betas for iOS 11 was because 10 was just terrible out of the box.
1: Well, and I want to say with iOS 11, didn't they start the public, public beta program, which I, I think maybe... To your to, to your point, Sam, they they started the public beta program for iOS based on the bugginess of ten. I think that sounds about mm-hmm. right.
0: It's it's all revisionist history now, right? <laughs> <laughs> sure.
1: Yeah. Hey, look, we can ascribe I think, whatever I we think want.
2: Ten, I think ten had a public beta. Did it? Too.
1: Okay. Although yeah, it looks like they had eight betas, and then a GM as well. So, yeah.
2: So, we're due for more yep, betas. Yeah, definitely but more betas. Not a lot of visible changes between the betas. Now, there was a, a rumor at the end of last week that talked about supposed new things coming in September that are unexpected not sure what that's going to be new, new products perhaps
1: i mean i think the new ipads are kind of telescoped in the beta just based on how they have moved the status bar to be in the top left and top right rather than you know the middle top so it seems like we're gonna get new ipads for sure with that notch taking <laughs> up some space for sure are you
0: are you guys running the betas on your ipads because that- i I yep. have not.
1: Yeah, I, like I said, I'm stupid and I run the betas on all the things. <laughs> um, but yeah, I'm running that on my first gen iPad Pro that I have. It's it seems like it works as well as a beta would. It's kind of kind of buggy, but I mean it's a beta, so I'm not a heavy iPad user, so I don't. I was like, well, if I'm on iOS twelve on my phone, and I was on Mojave on my laptop then I might as well you know installed on the iPad as well
2: yeah
0: I just but, didn't really bother to do it this time around so that I didn't install it on uh, OS 5 on my watch either because just from past years getting burnt too much on the, on the battery life and the watch betas
1: so I think on a previous podcast, uh, both of you guys were kind of like, "What is the point of installing the beta on your iPad or an iPhone that's not a 10?" Because what do you get? Um, yeah. So I think that was probably a valid point. Although the uh, Shortcuts app beta has released, it. so it's you go into, you know, the iOS developer portal and you can request access for it. Um. So that that would be a I think a reason, especially on iPad and also on iPhones and aren't iPhone tens to get the beta and play around with that stuff, figure out how Siri Kit may apply to your app and all that. Um, but I've I've been kind of tinkering with that a little bit and it's kind of cool. It's basically workflow, but it has a whole bunch of like newer OS level integration stuff. Like I'm sure Sam loves this. You can. You can uh, have a step in your workflow that just runs some uh, some JavaScript. So,
0: <laughs> that stuff I mean, is everywhere.
1: What what more could you ask for, Sam?
0: Swift. Why don't they do Swift? They got Swift playgrounds. Uh
1: huh. I don't know. Maybe 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 next beta we'll get. <laughs>
0: <laughs> or next next year, right?
1: I mean, they essentially have kind of said, you know, when they let go of Sal Segoyan, that Apple Script is kind of a, a thing of the past. So you never know; we might they might say, all right, automations going to be swift in the future. Although they have they have made some statements about JavaScript, so I don't know. It might be bad news.
0: Yeah. JavaScript's dead anyway. Long live WebAssembly.
1: So what else is new with you guys? <laughs>
0: <laughs> you know, okay. So uh, speaking of like beta bits and whatnot, I've uh, I thought after seeing both the uh, Apple and Google keynotes and whatnot, and how they're all making these big advancements in AR and, and machine learning and everything. I thought, wow, this would be really easy to go and put together some uh, text recognition in an app that I have. And so I started off, there's still really no great tutorials for this stuff that I have found. But I started going through, I figured I would just try out um, Apple's Vision Toolkit or Vision Vision Framework is what it's called. And it's pretty easy, like the tutorials, there are there are a few of them out there that kind of parrot the WWDC videos. And it's like, hey, look, I can put boxes around text that I see that in, in an image, and it's great. But it turns out that that's actually only half of the equation for doing any kind of OCR. Uh, the, the very first half is detecting words and, uh, bo- you know, basically finding the bounds of a word and the letters in the, in the individual words. So that's that's just the first half. But then you actually have to find out what the letters are, and the vision framework just totally drops off right there. Hmm. You're supposed to load up a Core ML model into the Core ML framework, <clears throat> and That's supposed to be trained on what your letters are. There's no nothing built out of, built in or anything like that, or easily downloadable stuff. Or at least some of the stuff I found that I could download just was not accurate at all. So it didn't work so well for me.
1: So I'm surprised. Like you know, Apple made a big deal in their keynotes that we have all these kind of existing. Core ML models that you can just add to your library without increasing your app size. So it sounds like text recognition is not one of them?
0: Not that I was able to find. And I was searching around just mostly last week doing this stuff and finding different alternatives. And, and Google has their um, ML kit for uh, Firebase. And so, as long if you're okay with using Firebase in your app, which for this particular app, I am, so I put that in there. And that works really well. It has a combination of online and offline modes, and in a way, the the offline or the online mode is just a way to to get you to upgrade to a, a premium tier of Firebase. Because then you have to run run cloud functions and whatnot, uh, but the the on-device mode works pretty well, and it'll give you actual text, and it'll give you like blocks of text and uh, lines of text within those blocks and everything. And so it's really great.
1: That's the offline version.
0: Yeah, yeah. That it,
1: sounds pretty cool.
0: It is, um, but I wanted I needed to do this in in an extension of the way I was going to work this app and (laughs) turns out that the firebase framework is really like a static library wrapped in a framework and so if you reference it from two targets within your app it loads the shared library twice and all kinds of bad things happen so I was back to square one. I can't use either of those.
1: Huh. So just just for my edification, we have CoreML, which is kind of like the low-level machine learning framework that Apple has, and then Vision is supposed to be like a high-level framework that sits on top of it.
0: Right. It has a number of uh, detectors in it, uh, like a um, Text Detector is the one I was using. I think some of the other ones that can do like a uh, QR code okay Uh, stuff and then mainly i was mainly um, interested in the text parts i pretty much ignored everything else
1: okay and then create ml is kind of their drag and drop look i can do ml thing look i can do machine learning yeah is that like another layer on top of the vision framework would you say or is that just like a separate branch off of core ml
0: I would say that that is more of what you would use to feed into Corel.
1: Okay, so it's more just of a tool that you would use to to train your
0: to create your models. Yeah. Your
1: model, okay. All right, that's that's useful to know.
0: Yeah, it's it's fascinating and I thought that it, it was be, this would be an easy task and I would have a nice quick win. Uh, that's definitely not the case
1: well that's kind of a bummer
0: (laughs) yeah and the other weird part is that I haven't been able to get it to work very well on my iPhone 6 my test device but on my my main driver my iPhone 10 everything works really well so that's some of the, like the Google frameworks themselves. And they work okay if you're just doing like a static image. But one of the things I was trying to do is also use a live video feed where you're just taking a a pixel buffer from AV Foundation and pumping that into the recognition frameworks. So, it's fun stuff, but it's, it's still, uh, still a lot of sharp edges that you have to navigate around
1: alright well if I, if I need some machine learning to recognize text I'm going to ask you how to do it next time because I'm sure <laughs> this is all going to change Yeah. either by next year or the next beta or whatever So.
0: Hmm. Right. the good news is it can only get easier I suppose
1: <laughs> <laughs> that's one way to look at it
0: right. <laughs> it's only, you only have up to go there's only one direction.
1: Yep. So, I guess one other thing that we kind of wanted to talk about this week, uh, kind of what workflows you guys use uh, for source control uh, on all the projects that you work on. It seems like these days most people are using a distributed versioning control system, mostly Git. Maybe there's some mercurial fanboys who listen to the podcast. Um but, so what do you do? Do you guys, do you guys use GitFlow? Do you do a, some other structured way of doing your source control? Do you do pull requests? What, is, what does that look like?
2: Our team mostly uses GitFlow, uh, or a variation of GitFlow. Uh, the big difference between what we do and, and Flow is we don't always have a release branch. Uh so we'll have trunk and the our main, and then we'll uh we'll create feature branches off of that and then p r s uh to merge into a dev branch and then master is represents production
0: that's typically the way I do it too for masters always representing production i've been on projects where that wasn't the case and it's really, it's just another branch that hangs out there.
2: Yeah. So, so we basically have three layers of branches. We have master, dev for development, and then feature branches for individual features. Uh, Git flow also includes a release branch, um, but we found that that's a little bit more overhead than we need.
1: We We do pretty much the same thing that you're describing, Alex, although... Uh, we just we just basically do tags for our releases, and if we need to do a like a hot fix, then we'll we'll branch off of that tag that happens on master. Although we're kind of in a weird scenario in that we have a mono repo with separate apps, so master can't really reflect um, production for all of the apps at the same time. So we kind of are more tag based for our actual. You know, shipping releases, but yeah, we haven't really found a good way to manage that in a mono repo setup.
0: Hmm. Yeah, the only time I use a release branch is when we're going to cut a release, but development on other features is still going to continue. And those other features wouldn't necessarily make it into that particular release.
1: Yeah, I, I guess maybe our our master branch is functioning as a release branch, kind of the way that you are describing it. Um, Since we can't really say this is production, since we have, like, Android, iOS apps, three different apps for each, and then, like, uh, server apps that all, you know, get deployed at various different times, different review processes and stuff. Um, So what about what about pull requests what do you guys typically do along those lines
2: we encourage pull requests for teams and even if somebody's on a project on their own they can ask a team member to review a pull request but you know any of those feature branches or bug fix branches uh, would be submitted as a pr and then you know we've got kind of a checklist of things to look at like You know, are there unit tests? Um, Is the project clean of warnings and errors? Uh, Run static analysis. You know, look over code format and structure. Um, Make sure common practices like localizing strings are done correctly. Um, And then they approve it, and then uh, the implementer. We'll do a squash to merge and then delete the branch. So do you normally squash? I typically don't. I typically do. Um can be a little bit cleaner in terms of you know, all the commit messages get at least with GitHub the default will kind of compile that all into one list and then you can clean it up and you've got one uh basically one commit that represents that activity instead of a whole bunch of commits um but you know it's a team preference as opposed to you know there are people who argue the other way yeah
1: i was gonna say we normally don't squash just because sometimes that history within a feature is is useful to see but then you know it's like how often is that important to us if we're going back and looking later on would it have been better if it was just like oh all these commits are squashed together and it was for this feature branch that we merged in that it was so yeah it's, it seems like you said it could go one way or the other I'm not sure if it matters I don't have a big strong opinion on on that uh, and as far as pull requests go we just don't do them so um,
0: <laughs> but if you had a junior developer on your team you would more than likely use a pr system for at least that person
1: well i mean yeah and we might be better off honestly with pull requests because i mean every everyone has blind spots or whatever so even if you're a senior developer and you do a big feature and then want to merge it in there's always the possibility that you know just that second set of eyes could be useful to to catch this or that um but, yeah, it's just, like, a factor of our, I think, our small team size and just not having, you know, kind of come up doing pull requests because we, I mean, I don't think we've, any of us have really worked in a enterprise environment uh, using distributed version control as all, you know, like subversion or CVS or some other monstrosity when we worked in, I'll I'll call them real jobs. <laughs>
0: well yeah that's what we do now you got out too early because eventually some of those big companies caught up oh yeah i mean
1: big companies now do that and the last big company that i worked at they were in the process of transitioning I we just yeah we just none of us were working in in big companies or even like you know small companies who are working on a distributed team or a team that that kind of need that stuff so within pull requests you guys have any any best practices for for how to do them or i mean you you kind of rattled off a couple things earlier alex who do you who do you have review them like you said if you're kind of a lone developer you can ask some other team member to to review stuff but like on a big team who do you have review on what do you what's the thought process behind how that all works
2: it quite often it's you know we have pairs on a team so you know there's usually two ios developers and two android developers so there's usually somebody um you know more familiar with the code but it's not so much a senior versus junior thing because you know Sometimes the junior folks will find things that senior people don't find. Um, you know, what, one important thing is to take emotion out of it. Uh, some people can get a little sensitive uh, when somebody else is reviewing their code. And it's certainly not a, a personal... Uh, it, it's not a comment on the, on the person if there's feedback. It's, it's a comment on the code. I personally like it. When somebody is reviewing my code and they nitpick, you know, spacing and formatting and things like that, you know, it's important to have good code hygiene. Um, It'd
1: be nice if the tools could enforce some of that stuff for us, but yeah. <laughs>
2: yeah, yeah. And it's awesome. Well, yeah. it's And there are some third-party libraries that can help with that. Like, uh, there's a Swift format library from nick lockwood i'm still a little bit nervous about using that on production code uh, because it does you know go through and reformat your code um but i i mean to your to your
1: point about always you know welcoming any feedback i mean the way i look at that look at it is if if you're not learning you're not getting better so i don't know why you wouldn't want that i mean maybe you have some person who's very very picky and pedantic about things but
2: And there's some people that they pick on style. You know, it's not that one way is wrong versus right. It's the, this is how I would do it versus how you do it. Um, That can get a little tricky. Um, You know, having a checklist defined of here are the things we're going to look at, you know, ideally, you know, there aren't any surprises there. Um, You you also have to be very careful about the reviewer being. more uh objective and not subjective yeah you don't make it sound like a personal attack and like this is the stupidest uh implementation i've ever seen or you know whatever them you know some sort of derogatory way of saying uh the code sucks Uh, but so you know that that's not productive Uh, you know you need to provide tangible objective feedback that that or constructive feedback that somebody can act on. So how
1: do you, how do you normally deal with a situation like that where you just have two people with different opinions on how to do things? Do you just kind of say, "Oh, well, it works," and you just let it go? Like I was talking to someone the other day, and you know, uh, we've talked about Uncle Bog before, but in his in Clean Code. Uh, Uncle Bob says that switch, switch statements are bad. You should never use them. He says they break single responsibility and open-close principle. We were trying to figure out what it was, so he looked it up. Um, <laughs> like, why does Uncle Bob not like it? But, I mean, if, like, someone's like, I don't think you should use switch statements, and the other person was like, well, I think switch statements are fine, because <laughs> in Swift or Kotlin, like, they, they help you... Uh, conclusively, like, exhaust all the possibilities, and you'll get a compiler if you add a new possibility and it's not covered, and stuff like that. Um, do, you, do you just yeah, kind I, of like lean in favor of the person who wrote the code, or what, what's what's kind of the thought process behind what you guys normally do to resolve those types of conflicts, or do you just avoid them?
2: As, you know, they certainly come up. I, I think a lot of it comes down to you know, there's couple different perspectives one is is the change going to add value to the end user or to our clients you know our clients aren't going to pay us to rewrite the same code five times Um, and then there's the notion of you know is this a style difference or or is there an actual objective problem with the way it's written and if it's just a style difference, um, you know, hopefully the team came up with, with, a, a agreed upon style for code and, and common patterns, uh, earlier on in the project, but you know, ultimately if it comes down to disagreement, you know, it's, it's usually the, the tech lead, you know, whoever that might be, it might be one of those iOS developers, or it might be a, an architect or a client architect on the project that makes the call and, you know, it may not be th- the optimal decision, but you know, you have to make a decision to move on. Uh, the worst thing that can happen is you get into a debate about style, uh, preferences that just go back and forth and don't move the project forward at all. Um, you're not adding value to anybody at that point. Um, so, you know, if that were to happen, then I would say whoever is managing the project trumps, uh, you know, even if the tech lead said this is the way we need to do it, you know, uh, code has no value until it ships. So if it's preventing something from shipping without introducing harm, then, uh, you know, it, it's it's just a roadblock that, that needs to be removed.
0: I think when in rome do as the romans do so if you oh, yeah.
2: yeah we have clients that have very particular preferences on how things are are done like you know one client that doesn't like storyboards or nibs so everything's programmatic
0: yeah. or even it can come down to where the braces fall in an if statement you have your own opinion but your client has their opinion and they're the one paying you, so their opinion is right for that time.
2: Well, let's, let's, let's not get crazy <laughs> here. There's there's only one right way of doing braces. The way you get paid for. <laughs>
1: I was just going to go to that example, because I was like, that, that in general seems like it made sense. And, you know, I always, like you said, I, I tend to, if it's already been done one way, I try to be consistent. I, I value consistency over, like, you know, the absolutely best in my opinion uh style preferences but yeah the i remember the the brace style being a big thing when i came to objective c thinking what is this K&R garbage it's ridiculous
0: (laughs) (laughs) well yeah you came from c sharp right or no i came from java okay
1: that was the most recent thing java so yeah i was like why why are all these braces on new lines that's ridiculous (laughs)
2: I think when I was doing C and C, that was my preference. But uh, when I moved to Java, (laughs) maybe because Java was so verbose, (laughs) like having the new line just meant less code on the screen.
1: But yeah, it was funny because we had one person on our team who was a longtime Mac developer. So he was used to, you know, new lines for, for the curlies. And we, I think we eventually just, convinced him somehow i'm not sure how that worked but <laughs> but yeah but i i think you're right you know when in rome i would say just do it do it's over been done because it's nice to just know go into code and you know have it look how you expect it to everywhere else in the code so i think that makes a lot of sense
0: yeah. it, it reduces cognitive load and that's the main thing you want to do in your apps you don't want people to have to think any more than necessary to figure out what your code is doing. And if they have to do a brace translation on top of whatever else they're looking at, you're just doing them a disservice. So what about code comments? Do you guys typically have any requirements
2: for commenting code?
1: Man, are we going to tabs versus faces next? Uh, <laughs> code, so code commenting. Uh...
2: And I personally try and keep the comments light. Focus on making the code readable but you know where you know i i see documentation being extremely valuable is you know i think every project should have a readme it should describe how to set up the environment how to get things building how to deploy um you know you're the future you or or the next person who's responsible for that project should be able to get things up and running without um hitting roadblock after roadblock
1: yeah, I, I kind of agree in general. I mean, I think you guys would you probably agree that, you know, if you have a comment and then you have some functionality underneath it that you have to explain, uh, give it a couple months and either you're going to have to change the implementation and the comment's going to be out of date or whatever. So the best comment in my mind is a comment that doesn't need to be written. Just make your code self-explanatory. Um I I think interfaces are probably a a place where it's better to have documentation when you're like going in between systems that that type of contract is is good to document but yeah and in code I feel like the less the less that you have to write and the more self-explanatory code is the better
2: yeah to that point like if you're creating a framework or a shared library or an API um that's definitely you you're building that to be used by a third party um, and they can't necessarily see the implementation so documentation definitely is valuable there but in terms of code comments for code that you can easily debug and um, step through you know that's they're less valuable
0: yeah I think though for public functions it's nice to have especially because it'll show up in the uh, code completion. So if I've written a function and it's been several months since I've written that function, it's nice for that to pop back up and have a little bit of documentation and I can see, oh, this parameter that I probably should have named a little bit better is actually going to be used for this particular purpose and it's gonna give me this return value back and it represents this type of data or whatever. That's helpful.
1: It sounds like we agree, though. Like you, I mean, you kind of said if if you don't need to, if you don't have a bad name for a parameter or whatever, that's better than having to document what it actually, what it actually is.
0: To to a degree, I mean, yeah, and especially if your comments are just going to be like, "Here's a parameter. It takes an image, and it is the image that we're going to work on." okay, that doesn't help me at all, right? That's not that helpful. Mm -hmm. Um, Hot key tip of the week would be if you tap on a function line in Swift and hit Command, Alt, and Slash, it puts in all the nice uh, boilerplate for the Xcode documentation. So it'll give you the description and then parameters and it'll give you the names of the parameters and then a... Place to fill in for the return value. And it has the little um code insertion blocks so you could just tab through.
1: Yeah, that seems like it could be useful like for a uh, something that someone else is using, like a third party, like a framework that you're delivering to someone or that someone else uses for sure.
0: Yeah, I worked on a project where everything that was public in a class or you know externally yeah. visible had to have some kind of documentation on it and that got to be pretty pretty big and there was a lot of overkill in cases because i was gonna say was it did
1: you find that that was useful or was that one of those things where (laughs) you're like well in when in rome you know everything's like this so i'm gonna do this but it just seems like a disaster waiting to happen when some new person comes in and forgets to change a comment on something or
0: yeah well it's public facing comments so it didn't have, there wasn't really any code comments inside the functions. That that was actually discouraged unless it was something tricky or unusual. Uh, in this case, it was just the, um, like. it's not Java doc, I forget what they call it for Xcode, but basically the description of the method and the parameters and then the return value. Or if it was on a public property, you had to document that too but the team lead even for for the public properties it'd be something like uh you might have one called user and his comments were just the user yeah yeah exactly <laughs> it's like the user it's like oh okay that's really helpful but it, it would pass their uh their linting tests so but some of the the like utility libraries that i wrote on that project they benefited greatly because i could even put in code samples and then the other people on the team would just pick that up right away and not have to bother me
1: <laughs> so the the more comments that let fewer people have to talk to us as programmers <laughs> the, i like that i like yeah. that as a general rule
0: it's a good incentive
1: <laughs> it's funny
0: yeah, it was it was nice because you could just you know alt click on the function and it would show the little example right there.
1: So yeah, have these discussions early up front so you can figure them out so they're consistent for sure. But yeah, kind of do what you want. <laughs>
0: <laughs> That's what the project does, and if but if the project isn't doing or could be better, it's always worth bringing up.
2: Yeah. And this is one of the core practices, engineering practices in agile is come up with a, a shared code style and that could evolve over time. But, you know, having that defined for the team, uh, removes a lot of friction and useless debate later on. Yeah. Instead you move that useless debate to the front. So (laughs)
1: hopefully only have it one time
2: <laughs> hopefully
0: yeah.
1: cool well i think that's about all the time we have left this week so why don't you guys tell me where i can find you on the internet
2: you can find me at aj robinson on twitter and as always you
0: can find me at sam quarter on twitter
1: i'm at Alex Argo and the podcast i guess is at shared inst but you probably just want to hang out with us in our slack uh by going to chat.sharedinstance.com to get an invite And we'll talk to you guys in a couple weeks.